Carl Stewart is an investment advisor representative of Carl Stewart Investment Advisor Incorporated. Call or text Carl now at 512-836-0590. Now, here's Carl. Good afternoon and welcome to Money Talk. I'm Carl Stewart and you're listening to News Radio KLBJ. Thanks for listening. We're in our 29th year here together. Money Talk is a broadcast about the world of financial and investment planning where you always determine our agenda by calling or texting 512-836-0590. You may listen online right now. I know a number of our listeners outside the Central Texas area do just that by going to newsradioklbj.com. Also, you can go there at your convenience and download broadcasts. I guess they might be called podcasts of our previous broadcasts. You can also go to the free app SoundCloud and listen to previous broadcasts without the commercial breaks. And this Thursday, after the news at 6 p.m., we will rebroadcast today's show. It's always a terrific idea to call or text at the beginning of the broadcast. That will give me, I hope, ample time to do my best to answer your question. And in that regard, we had a question last week, a text, as I recall, from a listener who was upset because he had to pay, he thought he had paid sufficient taxes and had not made quarterly payments and discovered that, in fact, uh, he hadn't. So I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I I think I always tell you this that and share this with you. I always take today's calls first and then today's text second and then answers in last week's text or the previous week's. And we have a call coming in, so I'm going to take that. Bob, you're on the air. How may I help? Uh, I'm, I'm going to back off my question for just a minute. I heard your intro on the, the mm-hmm. topic about the uh, estimated taxes. Yes. Uh, and I think I mentioned something on that, but let me just say it again. I hit the same problem last year hmm. where I thought I had done my estimated taxes correctly. Yes. And when I did my TurboTax, it ended up saying I had about a $300 estimated tax problem penalty. Hmm. I said, no, wait a minute. I'm getting a refund. I've done all my estimated taxes. What's this all about? Yeah. It's, be- it's because they normally like to see W-2, and, which are uniform payments throughout the year on your on your payroll, and they like to see your estimated taxes from, like, payrolls uh, quarterly in even amounts, and including if you do estimated taxes, they like to see four pretty much equal estimated tax payments. I, I had a fourth quarter Roth conversion, uh, and that was way bigger than uh, tax liability, way bigger than my other quarters, but I paid my taxes on that estimated, still got hit with the penalty. Well, what's the deal? All right. Um, that, that had to do with, I had to research that Form 2210 and figure yeah. out that the IRS will let you do that, but then they force you into a penalty box by having to do that Form 2210 to confirm that you've paid enough taxes. That's all I've got on that one. I'll, let, I'll, well, I'll that's back good. off and that I, one and let you go on. Yeah. Okay, the let's reason get, I called, Carl, yeah. I, I know you're well-read and uh, are up on many, many different things, get all the publications and newspapers and read everything you can. Well, anytime I get one of these Internet rumor-sounding things in the mail, like big government doesn't want you to know or big business doesn't want you to know, right off the bat I just go on, got other things to do. I know they're, they're just selling fear. Exactly. Now, I did get something the other day that was kind of commingled. It had a discussion about 
the FedNow program and a thing called CBDC, Central yeah. Bank Digital Currency, which I've never heard of. Yeah. And I, I didn't really hear anything about FedNow other than I know it's real. Anyway, uh, I'm confused about all of that stuff. Sure. And just thought I'd call you and ask, do you know anything of that? And is there any there there? Or is this just selling yeah. fear stuff? Yeah. I'll Great. hang up and uh, listen to your Okay, answer. terrific, Bob. Thanks for your call and thanks for your question. So I have had a chance to read about this. And uh, this month, the Federal Reserve is rolling out a new service called the FedNow Service. And it will allow instant payment between participating financial institutions. So instead of having to wait maybe for something to clear, it's absolutely instant between financial institutions. And they give an example on their website. Uh, so they say, they give an example of a person owns a, a coffee shop and she's running low on coffee. She can order the coffee and her bank can immediately connect with the bank of the coffee seller who immediately connects with the coffee seller, notifying the seller that the credit has come to their account, then simultaneously knowing the going to the buyer, in this case the coffee shop owner, and notifying her that her account has been debited. This is, in my opinion, a good thing. Uh, it, anything that speeds up the transactions is a good thing for business. Uh, it's a good thing for the integrity of uh, the financial system. And it reduces, if not eliminates, people to step in and do nefarious things. So they're going to roll it out. Uh, banks and credit unions get to choose whether to participate or not. And this process, uh, these are called central bank digital currencies, or CBDCs. And this part of it is, I think, a real positive, as I've said, and I look forward to it happening. I would tell you eventually, I hope it happens in the financial markets where you have instant settlement of trades. Because when I first started in the business in about 1847, you bought a security, and it settled in five business days. So if you were a seller, you didn't get your money until five business days later. And if you were a buyer, you didn't have to have your money at your brokerage firm or custodian until then. That's really, really inefficient. Uh, and they've narrowed that to three days and two days. But to make that instantaneous would be a real benefit to investors and it would be a, a real benefit to the financial system. So the idea of creating this FedNow service, I think, is excellent. Now, there's a lot of stuff, as you point out, Bob, almost kind of conspiratorial stuff about the government's going to create a digital currency, and they're therefore going to be able to control how much you have, how much money you have, and how you spend it. And in fact, uh, Governor DeSantis and Robert Kennedy Jr., so we have candidate, presidential candidates on both sides, saying that this is a real risk. That, frankly, is baloney. Um, Chairman Powell has said that there would be no creation of a digital currency 
without congressional ap- approval. My view is that implies that he could do it. My, my take is he couldn't. The Fed couldn't do this without congressional approval. And if you think that the Congress is going to pass a digital currency act that would allow the government to know where you're spending your money, how you're spending your money, and being able to control your spending, then you're living in the wrong country because that's simply not going to happen. So digital currencies, could they occur? Yeah. They're working well in China. Now, I know that raises all kinds of concerns because of our adversarial relationship with China. But based on my reading, people don't carry cash over there. And I don't know about you, but I don't carry a lot of cash because I use a credit card and then pay it at the end of the, you know, when I get the bill so I don't incur any any interest charges. So we're already in a society where we pay with plastic rather than we pay with cash. And, of course, if you use a debit card, it automatically debits your checking account. So we have been taking steps in the direction of digital currency. Frankly, I think digital currency would be a good deal. Having said that, it's not going to occur unless Congress approves it. And Congress is not, just think about the makeup of the Congress. Right now, you can't get Congress to agree on whether the sun rises in the east or the west. So I have absolutely no concern about this kind of conspiratorial idea that the government's going to take charge of the money. Bob, thanks. That's a really terrific question. You're listening to Money Talk on News Radio KLBJ. I'm going to take a break. We have all of our lines available and no new texts. So give me a call or send me a text at 512-836-0590. I'll be back. You're listening to Money Talk with Carl Stewart on News Radio KLBJ, 590 AM and 99.7 FM. Enjoy the podcast on newsradioklbj.com. Now, here's Carl. Welcome back to Money Talk. I'm Carl Stewart, and you're listening to News Radio KLBJ. Thanks for listening. When you have a question, call or text 512-836-0590. So as I was saying at the beginning of the broadcast, we had a text from a person who was surprised and understandably unhappy this year he had a penalty when paying their taxes. And our longtime listener and expert, Ken, had a response. And I am going to read his response. Uh, he is not giving you tax advice. And if you're a regular listener, you know I'm not giving you tax advice either. Here's what he said in an email to me. If one has paid in through withholding plus quarterly payments of 90% or more of your current year tax, there is no penalty. Also, it applies if you've paid in 100% of the prior year's tax, should be no penalty, which is interesting because Bob said you had to fill out a Form 2210. It also applies if all the payments, one still owes less than $1,000, and I'm sure Bob owed more because of his Roth conversion. Ken went on to say, your caller may have missed one of these, quote, safe harbors or missed one of the or more timely quarterly payments. You must pay it in quarters. You must pay it in by quarters or one is penalized for being late on the quarterly due date, even if one qualifies under one of the above exceptions. One cannot wait until the last quarter to pay it all, for example. If your adjusted gross income is greater than $150,000, 
one must have paid in 90% of the current year tax or 110% of the prior year tax to avoid a penalty. Now, you can still owe $1,000 or less after all payments and avoid the penalty. So I want to thank Ken for that. You're listening to Money Talk on News Radio KLBJ. Call or text 512-836-0590. As Bob said, and if you're a regular listener, you know I do my best to uh, keep up with what's going on, and I do a lot of reading, but that's kind of like taking a drink from a fire hydrant. I've certainly missed things. But there's a really interesting article if you are an investor in the financial markets and specifically in the stock market, whether on your own or with your advisor. I think it was a really interesting article. There's a column every uh, Saturday, Sunday, Wall Street Journal called Streetwise by the journalist James McIntosh, and he talks about... uh, what he calls surprising ingredients for a rally. And he says, real value stocks haven't done too well this year. So why is a $25 billion value exchange-traded fund up so much? And what he talks about is the different kinds of value exchange-traded funds and huge differences in returns. And he goes on to say that what exactly what measure to use to determine if a stock is, if a company is a value stock? Price to sales? Price to book, price to cash flow, estimated or reported remains a point of contention. That Microsoft isn't cheap on any of these measures is almost universally agreed, and he's using Microsoft as an example. Yet this company is the biggest holding in the S&P 500 value index. It has done really well and has propelled the index past the other two main value gauges by most over the, by the most over the last six months. The $25 billion iShares S&P 500 value ETF, the symbol is I, V is in Victor, E, has jumped 11% this year versus less than 5% for bigger rivals using the Russell 1000 and the CRSP value index from FTSE Russell and from Chicago Center for Research and Security Prices. So Microsoft isn't alone isn't the lone outlier in the index. Believe it or not, Amazon and Netflix, not values on any measure, are also in the index's value top 10. The story begins not with the S&P's value index, but with how the index provider puts stocks into its growth category, often considered the yin to the value's yang. Growth aims to capture growing companies, typically also more expensive on price-to-fundamental ratios. Microsoft gets into S&P's value measure, not because it's a value stock, but because its big fall last year meant it didn't qualify as a growth stock either, and S&P's approach forces it to allocate all stocks to one or the other. In a Microsoft's case, it's split, and about half the market value goes in each index, making it the second biggest growth stock and the biggest value stock. you got to stop and think about that. You assume that you're getting value stocks when you buy a value ETF. Okay, goes on to say, investors looking for clarity will have to read far into the documents to understand what they're getting. S&P has pure growth and pure value indexes too, which excludes stocks in the middle. But as a result, the pure growth index is even more confused. It doesn't have any of the big tech stocks that have come to define growth. It misses Apple, Microsoft, NVIDIA, Amazon, and Alphabet because they fell so much last year. 
So there are two big lessons for investors in the oddity of S&P's measures. First, and most important, is to know what you're buying. When it comes to exchange-traded funds, this takes work. It's literally in the name that S&P value is a value index, and it selects on standard value measures. So who would expect it to hold stocks best known for their growth? Similar due diligence is needed before investing in funds focused on quality. What counts as good? Momentum, trading costs are a killer, and ESG, which stands for Environmental Social Governance, it's all subjective. So who makes the decisions? I, th I really think that's an important distinction because if you said to me, I want to focus on value, and you selected the S&P value fund, there's no way, unless I had known, read this article, that I would have understood what I was getting. I remember years ago during the, the heyday in the 90s of growth stocks, there was uh, a mutual fund called Leg Mason Value, I believe the name of Value Leg Mason Value Trust is my recollection. And the, it was an actively managed fund, and the person who ran it was, I think his name was Bill Miller. And he had this amazing track record where he had, I think, outperformed. I'm doing this from memory because it's back in the 90s and probably the 80s for that matter, where he had outperformed the Standard & Poor 500 every year for something like 15 years. But when you went and looked at his portfolio, and particularly his top 10 holdings, and that's public information. You can go to Morningstar.com. Guess what showed up? Dell Computer. Well, as we know, those of us who have been around a long time, there was a period of time, 10 years, when Dell was the best-performing stock in the S&P for trailing 1, 3, 5, and 10 years. And he had the good judgment to not sell it, but to hold on to it through that run. And he posted great returns. But the name of his fund was Value Fund. So when you think about buying funds, I used to think this was something you really had to look for in actively managed funds to make sure you were getting what you thought you were getting. But what I realize now after reading this article is the makeup of exchange-traded funds matters as well. So if you are an ETF investor, and there's a good reason to use ETFs. They're cheap. They're tax-efficient. You can trade them throughout the day, which I don't think is a particular benefit. But if you don't know what you're trading, you can get in real trouble. Now, if you own the S&P 500 uh, ETF, well, I'd just say the SPY, then you have to recognize that's a market capitalization weighted index. What the heck does that mean? That means that Standard & Poor's takes the price of each of those 500 stocks times the number of shares outstanding. And the result of that multiplication is what's called the market capitalization or market cap. And so the more the stocks go up, let's say NVIDIA or Microsoft or Amazon or Netflix, the bigger and bigger percentage they have and the bigger and bigger influence they have on the index. And that's just, this isn't good or bad, it just is. And so what will occur periodically is that an index that is capitalization-weighted in a sustained bull market for a particular industry, let's say tech, you can end up with true value way underperforming. The other side of it is 
what's happening in the NASDAQ today. I was looking, and even though we had a down week, and I use uh, the Fidelity's NASDAQ ETF symbol ONEQ just as a proxy for the net because you can't buy an index, and I'm not recommending this ETF. It's up 31.5% in the first half of the year. That's only, that's only a modest 60% annualized return compared to SPY, the Spider S&P 500, of 15.55. So the NASDAQ peaked, you know, this is the benefit of being old, there aren't a lot of them. The NASDAQ peaked in March of 2000, and I remember reading it took 15 years, that's a long time, for it to reach that peak again, because it had become so heavily focused, that's the wrong term, so heavily weighted on tech stocks, and we had had such a fantastic tech stock rally that when it finally collapsed, the popular term was the dot-com bust, but it wasn't just dot-coms. It was really serious companies like Cisco Systems. It took a very, very long to come back. So the lesson here is, if you're going to own funds, you better understand the methodology so that you can understand the performance characteristics. We're at the bottom of the hour. Another half hour of bloviation. That sounds exciting. Might be a good time to call or text 512-836-0590. I'll be back. You're listening to Money Talk with Carl Stewart on News Radio KLBJ, 590 AM and 99.7 FM. Enjoy the podcast on newsradioklbj.com. Now, here's Carl. Welcome back to Money Talk. I'm Carl Stewart, and you're listening to News Radio KLBJ. Thanks for listening. We're here until 5 this afternoon. And when you have a question, call or text 512-836-0590. You may listen online right now at newsradioklbj.com. Our friend Bob in Arlington, who called earlier, probably is doing that. And you can also go there to listen to broadcasts of previous shows at newsradioklbj.com. Also, you can go to SoundCloud and listen to broadcasts as well. And this Thursday, after the news at 6, we will rebroadcast today's show, 512-836-0590. David, you're on the air. How may I help? Oh, thanks, Carl. Hey, um, I'm calling from out of state. Is it another scorcher down there today? Of course it is. <laughs> it, it you know we consider a cool day when it's ninety degrees. So yes, it's the heat index is over a hundred today, David. Thanks for asking. Sure. Well, I'm I'm originally from up in St. Louis, and uh, you remember a bunch of years ago. It might even have been during Jimmy Carter. Uh, the cities and counties uh, would provide uh, like. Uh, Double paned windows in, yeah. uh, you know, to, to help right. in insulation. Right, right, right. And uh, I think roof repairs were also covered, you know, so that. Yeah. And it 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 seemed like a, sort of a welfare program at the time, but yeah. it, in the logic of it, if you've got a section of town that basically uh, has more money going out in power bills than it has uh, income coming in, yeah, uh, it's you don't want to be treated like a colony. Right. And that the all of the money is going toward paying the cooling bills. Yeah. And uh, I remember back in those days they used to talk about painting your uh, roof white 
right. uh, so that it would reflect the sun right. back in the sky right. and yeah. cool down the roof. Right. And, um, you know, whether or not the cities and counties would be able to come up with a program like that too sweet, yeah. and every uh, every minute they save uh, or every minute they work on yeah. uh, cooling down people's roofs, yeah. uh, the more money they're going to keep in town for yeah. working capital. Yeah, yeah. And, it, and are you are you asking? Are you just making a comment about that you're in favor of that kind of policy? Oh, absolutely! Yeah, yeah. 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 It helps our, yeah. our house. We got those double pane windows. Yeah, yeah. It, you know, it's very interesting because it part of it. Uh, you know, some cities, and I, I don't know about you know in St. Louis. Uh, now I think it's Ameren, but in the old days it was Union Electric, uh, and Union Electric was an investor-owned New York Stock Exchange listed company. And so they had to have a, a profit, and in the way electric utilities. So the Missouri Power Commission, when 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 they had when when Union Electric had increased costs, just the natural increase of paying more, you know, paying staff and and all you know everything else, they had to go to the Missouri Power Commission to get approval because they were a monopoly. So they had to go to the Power Commission to get an increase in rates, and the increase in rates, if they got it was based on a return on their invested capital. So they did not necessarily have the, uh, the capital or they, to basically have an incentive to go to, uh, say, Kansas City or St. Louis and say, uh, here's some money, get your people to put in energy-saving devices, number one. Number two, the irony, of course, is that the only way that Union Electric could could stay in business was to sell electricity. So if every everybody were to do these energy f- saving things, guess what? It reduces their revenues, and if it reduces their revenues, it reduces their return on capital. And what's the response to that? You raise electric rates. This is really complex. That's why when we have these programs, they tend to happen at the federal level. Now let's take Central Texas as a different example. Here in Austin, our electric utility is owned by the city, and it pours over into the city coffers a significant amount of revenue, net revenues, revenues after expenses, which causes the city to have to raise less money in other forms of taxation. So if you think that through, if the Austin utility were to pay people to do double-pane windows and all the things you said, which makes all the sense in the world, then that money would not go to this city, and the city would have to raise taxes in other fashions. So it's when you think through the economics of it, it's really complicated, and that's why it seldom works uh, on a local level because the numbers just don't work. You end up typically with federal programs coming in and offering incentives. I don't remember if that was the case in the 80s. You and I are clearly old enough to remember when Jimmy Carter wore a sweater on television and told us to turn down the thermostats and we dropped the, we, we, and we dropped the, uh, the speed limit to 55, but that was also a function of the supply of energy. So you make a good point. I'm going to thank you for your call. Well, You're yeah, it was to- colony economics, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and, and preventing colony, and the difference, if I remember right, Union Pacific, or not Union Pacific, Union Electric. Uh, Union Electric, right. Yeah, they were pretty much a local company, but you get into a company, a corporation that sells electricity across state lines, then it becomes an interstate capital kind of flight. 
Well, not actually. That's actually not accurate because then they would be subject to two different commissions, and they'd have to justify their rates to the two different commissions. And no commission in in Arkansas is going to be in favor of having the revenues go to Missouri. I've got other calls, but thanks for calling and listening. You're listening to Money Talk. Garrett, turn this down off. Thanks. You're listening to Money Talk on News Radio KLBJ. 512-836-0590. Bill, you're on the air. How may I help? Yeah, hi. Uh, hi. I had a question about uh, an old 401k I have sure. uh, from a from a former employer. Uh-huh. Um, I just left it with uh, with a custodian um, mm-hmm. that, that was there in place. Sure. Anyway, that, that company is now being acquired by another company. Yes. So I was curious if you see any risks of leaving that 401k with the custodian with the the former company there. Yeah, I really don't. Uh, the every employer uh, which offers a employer sponsored they're called defined contribution plans has to do this under a a law that's been around for a, a long time bill called the Employers Retirement Employee Retirement Income Security Act or ERISA and the employer has uh, a fiduciary responsibility to do what's best for the plan participants. Now, they hire plan administrators, and they hire companies like Fidelity or Vanguard or American Funds or whoever to provide the investment alternatives, but they cannot eliminate 100% of their fiduciary responsibility. So if I had a, an old 401k, meaning one where I no longer worked, and that company were acquired by another company, uh, and I was satisfied, and you by nature are, because you have sustained your ownership there. If I were right. satisfied that they weren't somehow gumming up the works because I didn't like the new investment choices, then there's no reason not to change. Now, having said that, and this may not affect you, but it's not a significant number of employers take the position well, Bill doesn't work for us, and we're providing Bill with a benefit, and it's costing us something, and we don't like that. And so we're going to send Bill a letter and say, Bill, thank you for your previous service, but you're going to have to move that to either your current employer, if that's allowed, or you have to do what's called an IRA rollover. But based on your question, if the new employer, the new that's not your employer, if the new company, the acquire or is perfectly willing to leave you there and you're satisfied with the investment options, then I don't think you have any risk based on ERISA law, Bill. Okay, cool. So no, like, can anything shady, like, increase the expenses or well, force they, me to roll over into different funds or that kind of thing? They could. That's very common. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, that's very common. So that's why I said you'd have to be satisfied with the investment options. I serve, yeah, yeah. I serve on the finance committee of a, of a nonprofit in Central Texas, and we became very unhappy with the provider of our – this was a nonprofit, so it was a 403B instead of a 401K. We became unhappy, so we did our due diligence and selected a new provider. Well, the new provider is going to have different fund options than the former one. Now, they may be similar, but they're not going to be the same. So if someone had retired or left our employment and they didn't like the new one, they should do an IRA rollover or go to the new employer. So there will be changes, but they're not going to be changes that are going to be in, that are going to be deleterious to you in some kind of significant way. But you could, you're welcome to look at the expenses and look at your alternatives. You can always you always get out of there with an IRA rollover if you want to, Bill. Right. 
Right. right. Great. That's great information. Thank you. You bet. Thanks for calling. You're listening to Money Talk on News Radio KLBJ. We're coming down to the last quarter hour. It's time for me to take a break. Be sure and call or text before we run out of time. 512-836-0590. You're listening to Money Talk with Carl Stewart on News Radio KLBJ. 590 AM and 99.7 FM. Enjoy the podcast on NewsRadioKLBJ.com. Now, here's Carl. Welcome back to Money Talk. I'm Carl Stewart, and you're listening to News Radio KLBJ. Thanks for listening. We're here for, what, another 14 minutes. Call or text 512-836-0590. Here is a text. Carl, should I be concerned if one market like the NASDAQ is doing well, but my financial advisor is not recommending changes that would benefit from these upticks. Frankly, I would not be concerned if what you're trying to accomplish is, I'm going to use a fancy term here, if what you're trying to accomplish is the best risk-adjusted return. What does that mean? Well, what the quantitative analysts would say is the amount of return for, a, for the amount of risk for a unit of return. So when you have the NASDAQ, that is heavily weighted to tech companies, and so it's screaming upward. But if a year ago, in the beginning, now a year and a half, at the beginning of 2022, your advisor said, boy, I think we ought to get into the NASDAQ. It had a great 2021, and you got in. You lost 33% last year. You're up 31% this year, so you have not even gotten back to where you started at the beginning of 2022. So if the NASDAQ is moving and your advisor recommends that, there ought to be some non-correlating assets in your portfolio to the extent that you want to avoid a 31% decline by only, only owning the NASDAQ. My personal preference would be to own the total stock market which takes in a bit more than the S&P 500. It's still market capitalization weighted, but year-to-date it's up about 14.94%, the S&P up about 15.55. Those are terrific returns on a historical basis. If you can live with the volatility of the NASDAQ and you want to take that kind of risk, can you add that to your portfolio? Of course you can. But you don't get 30% returns without 30% losses. And I can guarantee you that if your advisor has any experience, she knows that she can't predict at the beginning, at the end of 2021 with a great year, that the next year that NASDAQ was going to collapse any more than she could predict that the beginning of this year it was going to skyrocket. You're listening to Money Talk on News Radio KLBJ. Call or text 512 836 Ron, you're on the air. How may I help? Well, I had a kind of a broad question. I, I've worked in the past uh, with student service projects, and they focused on issues like contaminants. Uh-huh. And now that that the the uh, what is it, East Palestine rail, derailment and all the toxins they had there, I understand that they were shipping some of those toxins from that site down into Texas. Yeah. What. What, what are the variables there as far as the health considerations ah. from these toxins? 
Ron, I'm sorry. And, and, this, uh, I apologize for interrupting you, but this show is money talk, and it's not a, a talk show about those kinds of issues. And so I'm sorry that this isn't the right show. So please listen to KLBJ and call it at a different time. Thank you for your call. You're listening to Money Talk on News Radio KLBJ. Call or text 512-836-0590. Let's see about this. What here? Okay, there's talk on the internet about a three-fund retirement portfolio. It consists of 10% in a growth exchange-traded fund, 40% in a foundational ETF, and 50% in a dividend exchange-traded fund. How do you, what do you think? How many funds is appropriate? Thanks, DJ. Well, I don't know what a foundational ETF is. But frankly, that's a terrific question because it gets to what I was saying when I was answering the other text. So when you think about building your portfolio, whether it's your 401k or your own taxable account or working with an advisor, I come back to the very beginning. What is it that you're trying to accomplish? If you're, you know, 20 years old, and you're going to be putting money in twice a month in your pay period, and you really sincerely know that you're not going to be looking at it, not going online all the time and looking at it, and you want to invest in an all-stock fund portfolio, then I'm okay with that. But what we've learned, uh, and a couple of people got Nobel Prizes for this, Danny Kahneman and Richard Thaler, when they basically invented the science called behavioral finance, what we've learned is that human beings are not risk tolerant, that when our portfolio rises 10%, we experience a 10% gain. And when our portfolio drops 10%, we experience a 20% loss. In fact, I think people who don't want to do this themselves gain the best value from their advisor in bad times, if it's a good advisor, and not the good times. In good times, you can own the S&P 500 and look like the world's smartest person. But then it comes along a year like last year, and all of a sudden you're not nearly so smart. And so I think keeping people on plan, if they can do it themselves, I think they ought to do it themselves and, advise, and, and avoid the advisory fee. But if they either don't have interest or don't want to do the analysis or are intimidated by the process, Hiring somebody to do it, it's just analogous. I'm doing my own taxes like Bob in Arlington does with TurboTax, or I'm hiring a CPA like Carl does because I don't want to think about it and I don't want to get a nasty letter from the IRS. That's a fundamental decision. But this three-fund portfolio makes me anxious because I don't think you get, number one, diversification, and frankly, equally important, uh, correlation, negative or non-correlation, by having a three-fund portfolio. That sounds like all stocks. Now, the dividend ETF is a stock fund that invests in stocks that pay rising dividends, I would guess. And the growth fund, we have talked about that earlier this afternoon. I don't know about the foundational ETF, but those are all equity-sounding funds. And for frankly, my experience is, whether you're 30, 40, 60, 70, or 80, most people discover in the inevitable bear markets that they're not real fond of risk. You know, historically, we've had a 
balanced portfolio of 60% stocks and 40% bonds. And the reason for that was that over long periods of time, you got a better risk-adjusted return than having all the money in stocks. Does that always work? Not if you were in the markets last year when the Bloomberg Ag, which is essentially the index of the bond market, was down, as I recall, about 13%. But last year pointed out the benefit of having other strategies that are not correlated positively, or at least not nearly as correlated as bonds are and stocks. We've had a period of time until last year where bonds and stocks were actually positively correlated. Why? Because we had falling interest rates. We essentially had a 50-year bull market, I beg your pardon, 40-year bull market in bonds in falling interest rates. So yeah, we had spikes in interest rates from time to time. But if you go back and look at that chart from basically 1981 until a year or so ago, rates fell. And if that happened, bonds went up. And as stocks went up over time, they were correlated one to another. So that's what I think. So I'm not comfortable with the three-fund retirement portfolio. You're listening to Money Talk on News Radio KLBJ. Call or text 512-836-0590. Let's see here. I think I may have one. Let's see. Is there a way, hi, Mr. Stewart, is there a way to analyze the sale of government bonds? Say I own two bonds with a one-year maturity. One has a 2% coupon and one a 5% coupon. This is a thoughtful question. The first would be sold at a discount and the other at a premium, assuming a market rate of 4%. Both would, will be par in one year. If I sell today, I will have a capital loss or gain. If I hold, I will have interest income. If I hold to maturity, I will lose the premium on the higher rate. How do I analyze it? Well, that's a terrific question. So what, what we're talking about is when you own individual bonds, the marketplace prices them on what's called a yield-to-maturity basis. So if I've got a bond paying me $50 a year and, everybody, and, and the market's $40 a year, people are going to pay me more for that bond today. But they're not going to pay me a lot more because they know in a year from now they're only going to get $1,000. So they're going to pay me a little more than $1,000 for that. If, on the other hand, using this person's example, Interest I'm getting the interest rates are four percent for a one-year bond, four percent yield to maturity, and I have a two percent coupon. People are not going to pay me a thousand dollars or par for that bond, so it's going to sell at a discount to a thousand dollars, but not a huge discount, right? Because I'm going to get a thousand dollars in a year. Now, if it were a ten-year bond and it had a two percent coupon in a four percent world, which is what we're in right now the discount would be greater because to calculate a 4% yield of maturity when you only have $20 a year coming in, you're going to have to buy it, you're going to sell it or buy it at a lower price so that you include the capital appreciation by holding it to maturity. And the opposite is, is the case. So when you say, how do you analyze? They both ought to be priced, since they have the same credit quality, you use the example of government bonds, they both ought to be priced on a yield-to-maturity basis. And if you are going to reinvest the proceeds, then there's really no reason to do anything. Yes, the premium's going to disappear, but you're, you're selling your 5% bond into a 4% market, and you're going to turn around and have to reinvest in a 4% market. So... This is complicated stuff, 
and not easy to understand in two or three minutes on Money Talk. But I must say that even though this isn't your question, one of the reasons I prefer active management in bond funds, I'm okay with passive management for a portion of your stock portfolio. You want to index passively the S&P 500 to the total stock market. I'm all in for that. It's cheap. It's tax efficient. You get the beta of the market. But when it comes to active management in a bond fund, if you pick a quality bond fund and you pick a manager that you have confidence in that has a track record, she or he and their staff are going to be looking at the various kinds of things that you're talking about and where they see bonds that they believe are cheap, that's their phrase, versus expensive, they're going to be buying and selling bonds based on that. But the, the, the way to analyze this is the marketplace is efficient, and that means they're priced to maturity, and they're both going to be par value or $1,000 in one year, using your example. You're listening to Money Talk on News Radio KLBJ. Let's see if I have time. Let's see what this next one is. How many months should I use to dollar cost average back into the market? I have some CDs that are complete. I've got about a minute to ask that. My experience is about six months. No guarantees, but generally speaking, you have a normally volatile market. You'll be able to pick up some of that volatility to your, to your benefit over six months. Well, we're out of time. Good broadcast this afternoon. Thank you for listening. I want to thank Matt and Garrett for their good help. And to remind you next Saturday after the news at 4, tune in to Money Talk.